0: Hello, welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Andrea Tanner, who is Company Archive for Fortnum & Mason.
1: Uh, How did you come to work for Fortnum & Mason then? It was a complete accident. Um, It's always who you know rather than what you know, I think. Um, A friend of mine was sitting at a dinner party next to Kate Hobhouse, who's the current chair of Fortnum's. And she said that um, they were getting lots of inquiries about their past and they didn't know how to answer them. And they knew that they had an archive but they didn't do anything with it. And did he know anybody who might be willing to take it on? And he said, oh, I know just the person. So this was over 20 years ago. I became a volunteer archivist. Um, and I used to go in on a Saturday when there was no one in the offices and catalogue and box and answer questions. So I knew um, people's handwriting long before I met them at Fortnum's in the offices. So That's how it began. Um, so I was just on a Saturday. And then gradually it was one day a week and then two days a week and then three days a week. And now I'm four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And on a Wednesday, um, I teach at the University of London.
0: Oh, wow. So you're the first archivist
1: for Fort yeah. London, then. They've never, oh. never, had it, never had one before. And now we have one and a half. I have a deputy archivist who's much younger than me. And her digital and technological skills are far superior to mine. <laughs> so can you describe um, what you do in an average day then? Uh, there isn't really an average day, especially at the moment. Um, so I'm one of—I suppose I'm quite public-facing. So I do inductions every second Monday to new members of staff, and if those members of staff are quite high up, they get an individual induction. Every second Thursday, well, after lockdown, I hope um, I do delicious history tours of the store for twelve people members of the public and it takes between two and three hours depending on how interested they are in them. I work very closely with the packaging manager so the packaging which is a very important part of Fortnum's identity is informed by what have we done in the past, what might we do, what colours have we used in the past, what copy have we used in the past Also, what products have we used at the past? So I work quite closely with the buyers and if they're thinking about new ranges, we look to our history to see if that can be an inspiration. What not to do as much as what to do. Um, What else do I do? I'm the queen of eBay. So I buy things on eBay and at auctions, um, really to fill in the many gaps that we have in our collection members of the public get in touch. I mean, certainly during lockdown, a lot of people have been clearing out their cupboards. So they're finding moldy old Stilton jars at the back of their (laughs) cupboards. So I'm doing a lot of identification and dating and descriptions of what they're finding in their cupboards. Um, A lot of people want to sell these things back to us, but I have rather a lot of Stilton and caviar pots so um, it's only in exceptional circumstances that I will do that but I do keep a close eye on auctions and on eBay because there are things there that I I don't have and that would be very useful.
0: So what type of material do you have in the collection right now? You've obviously got physical objects which you've sold but anything else?
1: Yeah well we have the physical objects we didn't have any when I started and we've got about a thousand now. And it's mostly packaging, but I've also got hats and shoes and coats, um, handbags, things like that. But it's mostly tins and and boxes. Um, The archive itself is quite unusual, um, and that's really because of our history. The company was owned really by one family until the end of the 19th century, and the family died out. And that meant that there was nobody really to inherit the records. And where a a family owns a company, chances are they're not that interested in keeping the physical record of that company because they know it all. It's almost in their daily so which is a problem. Um, So we were owned by one family, as I said, until the end of the 19th century. And then we became a limited liability company with shareholders. During the Second World War, we sent the archive to two places. One was a house in Richmond and the other was to Siri Mom's studio in Paradise Walk in Chelsea, just off Royal Hospital Road. Siri Mom was an extraordinary woman. She was a designer, the daughter of Dr. Bernardo, um, the first wife of Sir Henry Wellcome and later the wife of the writer Somerset mom, she invented the white room in the 1920s and 30s. We bought her business at the end of the 1930s and we sent the archive to her studio in Chelsea for safekeeping. And unfortunately, her studio got a direct hit during the Blitz. Oh, dear. So a lot of what might have survived, I'm sorry to say, um, got hit and did not survive. So it's a really unusual business archive. I don't have customer records. I don't have supplier records. Um, I don't have correspondence. I don't have contracts. It's mostly ephemera. It's mostly catalogues, um, photographs, artwork. Um, We do have uh, directors minutes from 1914 onwards we do have annual reports from 1906 onwards um, but it's it's an interesting archive in that it's almost entirely ephemeral in nature not at all your usual business archive
0: so it sounds like you work really closely with the marketing department but who else accesses the collection and, and what reason do
1: they have for that well our public relations company are always asking me for information. Um, We get, I deal quite a lot with the press. So we have a lot of journalists and bloggers and so on. that want information, they want images and so on. So I supply them. I supply the buyers, as I said, with information. I'm responsible for the artwork in the store. So... Um, If anybody wants to borrow one or to use one or it needs to be photographed or valued, I deal with um, the finance department and with restorers. Um, I seem to be partly responsible for the historic fabric of the building. So I have a wide network of gilders and paper restorers and textile restorers and wood restorers and stone restorers um, so that um, they're on hand if ever we need something beautified um, I work with visual merchandising quite a lot occasionally they look for um, displays of artifacts to highlight a particular um, project or a particular um, campaign I suppose yeah HR I deal with um, yeah to be honest it's just about every department inside inside the building. Um, one of the things I had to do the other day was um, taste something. We had a complaint from a customer that one of our hero products didn't taste quite like it should and it was deemed that I was the person who would obviously know what it was supposed to look and (laughs) taste like so I had a special delivery at home of a jar of this speciality and uh, then I had to write a little report what I thought was wrong with it so it's everything and anything really Um, that is a huge remit
0: you have there especially having to deal with building concerns and things like that that's not common for
1: this at all no it's not but I suppose because I have because of the research that I do, a lot of what I know about the history of the building and the history of the company comes from outside archives and libraries. Mm -hmm. So I do have a photographic record of what things used to look like, um, who did the carving, for example, um, when it was first put up and so on. So I do, I suppose I'm in the best position to know what's right and what's not right, and the the building itself is um is very precious to us, and we want it to remain as beautiful as we possibly can.
0: Yeah, I suppose um, Fortnum and Mason is is quite unique in the fact that people do associate it with a particular building, unlike a lot of collections.
1: Yes, and I mean, what's quite interesting about the archive is it's not in the building anymore. We outgrew our space completely, so last autumn uh, with a very heavy heart I'm sorry to say I felt as if I was you know my baby was leaving home Um, but you know we had grown the archive so much there was just no room for it anymore in the building. I've managed to hang on to a tiny room and that tiny room known as the room of requirement has things that are on their way down to Woolwich or they're coming back from Woolwich or there are things I don't want to leave the building. They're very precious things, um, works of art that come down temporarily and are destined to go back up. That sort of thing, things that are being catalogued at a specific time. So I'm I'm repelling all borders as far as that space is concerned. A lot of people have got their eye on it, but they're not. Having sure, it. they do. <laughs>
0: So do you think there are any particular challenges that you have to face with with this um, corporate archive?
1: Yes, I suppose because it's not a normal corporate archive, um, because it really does consist of ephemera, and ephemera by its very nature. You know, a lot of these catalogues never meant to last more than a month or two Mm -hmm. and I've still got them 100 and 110 120 years later so conservation is quite difficult because everybody in the business knows that we've got these things it's a little too easy to just use the archive as a go-to oh let's just copy something that we've done before and that's quite difficult. Um, it's not really my job to say no to people. It's my job to say yes to people, but I do have to be careful about, I suppose, making it too easy for people not to think about what's relevant today rather than what did we do? You know, it's a bit too easy to, I suppose, um, a bit of a parasite on the past the past is there to act as an inspiration for innovation and new design and new products it's not there to keep us locked into the past yeah you don't
0: want to rest on your laurels
1: we can't rest on our laurels Um, you know it's there for inspiration it's there sometimes as a warning about you know what didn't work at a time and why it didn't work but that's really what it's there for. So I'm, I suppose I'm a little less um, willing to lend things out <laughs> um, within the, the business. You know, I'm very happy to sit down and talk to people and give them illustrations of, of what we've done. But the artifacts themselves, I don't lend out. I, don't, I certainly don't let people have access to original records now.
0: Okay.
1: It's a little too easy. It's a little
0: too easy. So you're looking towards the future
1: of the company in that respect? Definitely. And we have in place, at the moment it's a very informal system, because I work so closely with the packaging manager. When we we have her CAD files for all the packaging, um, which we're trying to think about how are we going to manage these digitally, um, because they take up a huge amount of space on the server, but they're going to end up in the archive soon. We have the physical uh, evidence. So we have examples of tins and packaging and labels and so on. Um, We're trying to, I suppose, create almost a, a trail where once we would have had the paper trail, we're now instigating a digital electronic trail of how decisions were come to with regards to packaging and product development and product design. So we've got to, we've got to think about, you know, I look at the archive and it's principally paper, but most of what we produce today is not paper Mm. and capturing that. And I suppose trying to instill and engender and encourage a different way of looking that how records are kept is something that's a huge challenge for us and something that we are having conversations with different aspects of the business because I don't want to lose anything on my watch. I really don't. It's almost happenstance that what we have surviving has survived and I really don't want to lose anything that I have but I also don't want to lose things that are being created now because you have to think about your successors and I don't want them to curse me for not, for not knowing um, what was happening today. And we're going through a period of immense change. You know, every business at the moment is going through immense change and capturing that change is one of the things that um, we're very anxious to, um, to secure i 've got um, a couple of peepses in the business who are recording their experience of lockdown, for example because i 've been going through um, 1920s depression i 've been going through the records of the war and i don 't have any personal testimony from the business about what it was like you know yeah. the bombing and and not being able to get home at night and and having to sleep in the building and still look smart the next day, and and so on and so on. So it, so that's what I'm. We're we're trying to capture, just a few members of staff to record their experience of of really what is an unprecedented time in international experience at the moment.
0: So is that your your hope going forward for the future of the archive? Just that you're kind of concentrated on, um preserving the current which will then one day be the past of course
1: yes yes i think that's to some extent that's my that's my most important function just now but i also i'm very aware of the huge gaps that there are in our knowledge and in the archive and i'm using digitized sources to fill those gaps as best I can. So one of the great advantages of so many resources being digitized and at the moment, during lockdown, freely available, mm-hmm. um, so I'm making a great use of um, the National Archives free download facilities at the moment and so on, um, that I'm, I'm trying to fill the gaps and, and fill those gaps with historical context, Um, because, you know, the company, the company has people who are interested in history, but they're not historians. So context is very, very important. So, so I have lots of subject files that I've created, for example, the history of tea. (laughs) So we have lots of information on the history of tea, and that can come into play. There are little stories there, there are quotes, there are Poems about tea, there are tea in fiction, um, uh, tea manners, the etiquette of tea. So lots and lots of things that I hope will be of use um, in um, in projects uh, in the future. What type of gaps are you just dying to to, to fill? Eighteenth um, century. I've got so little. For the 18th century, I think I've got two receipts from the oh, 18th century, really? and um, the sun assurance um, insurance policies, <laughs> and I've got wills and so on for the for the um, for the Fortnum family. So I I I've been going through 18th century newspapers, and I find some quite interesting. Um, Quite interesting things, so that's been quite handy about the nature of the business um, in the 18th century. So, but you know, there are also huge gaps in the 19th and the 20th centuries. So, newspapers at the moment are the resource I'm going to more and more um, to try and find references to the company and what we were doing. So, I've now got. For example, a database of members of staff that I didn't know about and you know, I do little biographies of them using um, ancestry and find my past and, and so on, so that we know a little bit about some of the people on whom our reputation rests because there are generations of staff who, who have created the Fortnum's that we have today and, and I think it's good that they're honoured
0: do you um do you kind of actively um put out requests for that kind of thing or do people come to you
1: um people tend to come to me um we don't have a fortnum's alumni or a fortnum's facebook page it's something we've been looking at but at the moment i think it's rather low down the um uh, the company's uh priority list but it is something that we've we're going to put forward for the future because some of the most interesting stories come from outside the business you know it's the descendants the children the grandchildren the great-grandchildren of people who shopped and worked at the at the business or supplied us so we do get people tend to come to us although occasionally I go to them um, we had a we had a designer in the 1930s called William Hayes Marshall, who was absolutely an extraordinary man and created an amazing interior decorating department that used some of the most exciting talent of the interwar period. And I didn't really know very much about him, but I managed to find... Because he was married He was married many times, Mr Hayes Marshall. And I managed to find a descendant of his, in Australia. Oh, wow. Um, So we've been communicating. Unfortunately, I found him just at the time of the terrible fires and uh, I got an email from him saying he was just abandoning his house. Um, So I hope he's all right, I haven't heard from him since, but we had, we had some very interesting um, correspondence and I now know much more about him than I did before. Um, and you know, he, he's an important part of the jigsaw. He's an important element of the story. So I suppose it's six of one half a dozen of the other. I find somebody who I think is, um, I can see is interesting. Um, one of the things I'm doing this week is I'm reaching out to the great grandchildren of one of our directors. It's slightly, it's slightly worrying, cold calling people.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I'm developing a harder skin, <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you explain who you are at the beginning of the call and that you're not trying to sell them double glazing um, <laughs> it's it's usually all right it's usually all right
0: i think people probably just don't understand how interesting their their family history is that, that actually that information isn't just um exciting to sort of your cousins or whoever It
1: is it paints a wider story it does indeed it does indeed and it i mean it's one of the of the great advantages and one of the huge developments of, of the digitization process that so many people can trace their ancestry so much more easily. And it's not just that they can trace them, but they can also reach out to members of their family they don't know, they did never knew about before. And these people are across the globe. So, you know, it's been a, a huge, a hugely democratic development over the last 20 years, ancestry and find my past and the other, um, the other servers who've been using digitized records, because you know I used to be a professional genealogist, and genealogy, really until the 1960s, was the domain of the upper middle classes and above, because they're the people who left the written records mm. And it was so difficult to access anything about working class people. And now it's not so difficult. <laughs> and certainly with the development of DNA, you're, you can reach out to people you have absolutely no idea had been, you know, we're, we're in the same family as you. So, um, and, you know, sometimes they're, they're extremely happy discoveries. So I think, you know, in an era of, of more and more populism, digitization is allowing people to stretch across the globe and break down barriers and make connections. And I think it's just it's only just going to get better and better.
0: I think it's really um, precipitated this interest in social history as well. And how you as a person relate to world events like you know like department stores and things like that known yeah. all over the world and um, yeah it's definitely not just interconnected by the internet but actually in real life too.
1: Yes, um, I think one of the areas that will probably grow certainly as far as business history is concerned and certainly as far as retail history is concerned is that I think women's history professionals are going to get more and more interested in them. And I hope that means that there will be more, um, I suppose, more databases, more information available on the function of women in, in retail. I've been trying to do work on our buyers in the past. Mm. Think about it. Yeah. Buyers are the people who determine what you wear on your back, yeah. <laughs> what you have in your house and so on and so on and so nothing has really been done on them um, it's extraordinary um, and maybe it's because women are invisible I don't know I mean I'm finding it quite difficult because the only place I can find out things about the buyers at the moment in the past is through the director's minutes and they're always called miss or missus we mm-hmm. never get a first name
0: yeah, hard to <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Out. it's hugely difficult but I think you know I think there's going to be a lot of work by um, women's history practitioners on the role of women in retail and in business. And with a bit of luck, um, we will be able to find out more about them. And that's where digitization will come in quite considerably, I think.
0: So you are missing basically so Fort Mason was founded in what 1707, wasn't it?
1: 1707, so same year that on the same site for 313 years, which is unusual. We haven't yeah. moved. We haven't moved. Twinings, I think, they haven't moved either. They're 1706. They're in the same spot as they were. But
0: um, you don't have really anything from that first century of
1: no. no. Um, the Fortnum family had been enormous um, they come from a village called Epwell in North Oxfordshire in uh, quite near Banbury and they had been huge. They're the great drivers of the business. The Masons are not really, um, they just kind of slightly arrivistes, really, um, but they're, they're, the Fortnums were hugely entrepreneurial and they were an enormous family. Slight problem is that they tended to marry within the family. They had a habit of marrying their cousins. Uh-oh. And Mother Nature doesn't like that very much. Mm. They, they died out um, by the end of the, the 19th century. And there isn't anybody, you know, there was nobody to inherit papers. There was nobody to, you know, I, I know the contents of one of their houses because he was an antiquarian. Who died um, at the end of the 19th century and and he was a huge collector. Um, And I know a lot about him and I know what he owned, but what he didn't seem to own were any family papers and his own manuscripts do not seem to have, you know, some of them are at the Ashmolean in Oxford, some of them are at the Society of Antiquaries in London, but there's very little about his ancestry in that there are no... You know, there's a family portrait that was sold. Um, I think it's Sotheby's, about thirty years ago. Um, but who I haven't been able to find out who sold it and who bought it. So it's um, it's a it's a jigsaw and it's a jigsaw with lots and lots of missing pieces. But I'm I'm doing my best <laughs> to fill in as many of them. It's just the 18th century is a is a great sadness for me because I. I would just love to know much more about the working of of the business and about the families. Yeah. You know, being an an old genealogist, I got 6,000 Fortnums on a database. Wow. At home. Um, And I think I've managed to find out where many of them fit in, but it's not, it's not enough. So I will be carrying on with my, with my quest.
0: So with such a um, patchwork archive, what is, in your opinion, the most interesting item?
1: Uh, I've got two. I've got two. One of them is the original order from Ernest Shackleton for the Endurance in 1914. I know what he took with him from Fortnum and & Mason. And I'm, I, I, I just love it. I love the thought of where those Supplies went, and when did they eat them? And did they help them during that dreadful time? Yeah. During that quest, so that—that's, I think that's my most precious uh, archive, and that's in the building. It's not—it's not leaving. (laughs) Uh, Really, I'm not sending it anywhere. and if anybody wants to see it, they can see a very nice digitized copy of it. <laughs> They're not getting their hands on the original. Um, and the other is something that I found on eBay that I just love. It's a cocktail calculator created by us in the 1920s. We were very big in the world of cocktails in the 20s. Oh. And this is, almost looks like a little slide rule And it has 50 recipes on one side and 50 on the other. And you just move it backwards and forwards to see, you know, number 50, the wicked lady. What do you do? And do you, you know, is it a squeeze of lemon or is it the lemon peel or whatever? And it's great fun. And I would very much like us to reproduce that with modern cocktails. Yeah, well, it's the 2020s now, so... Indeed we are, indeed we are. So I just love that. And I love the fact that, um, uh, that we produced it. Um, it, was, it came out of um, the cocktail specialist's head at Fortnum's in the early 1920s, and that we've got this now. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have that.
0: Yeah. So you've mentioned Twinings and obviously there are some other big um, department stores yes. in London that have a, a long history. Do you kind of share information with them or, or yes. any
1: other companies? Yes, we do. We have, um, we're all members of the Business Archives Council. So there are lots of um, events and you know, websites and emails. We do support each other. But there's also a very informal group of retail archivists, and we meet very occasionally. And we have tea, or sometimes we have dinner, and we have meetings. So we do work very closely together, and we're always looking out for things for each other. So the ones I know best, of course, are the ones in London. So I know the Harrods archivist very well, um, the John Lewis archivist. I know um, the Burberry archivist really well. So we keep in touch, but I also keep in touch with archivists in and around um, Mayfair and St. James's. Mm. You'll be amazed the number of archives there are there, everything from the Royal Academy to the Athenaeum. So we keep in touch uh, with each other because you never know what you're going to find um, that could be useful. That's a nice sense of camaraderie then. Yes, I mean we're we're not a great big group archivists, but we are quite friendly.
0: Yeah, and
1: you know we're in the communications industry. You know, I think the um, the traditional image of the archivist is a kind of slightly dysfunctional person in a in a beige cardigan with leather patches on it, who who just sits with dusty tomes day after day and that's not what it's about at all it's we're information managers and disseminators we're storytellers and we are the people who determine what is going to be remembered yeah to that extent we have a frightening amount of influence not i wouldn't say power but we have a, a significant influence and um you know we are the storytellers of of the company and sometimes those stories are, you know, are not upbeat. Even if one is in the marketing department, certain things have to be managed.
0: So you can check out some of the stories that you have collated on the Fortnum and Mason website. Um, you're very proud of the images that you have. Um, so the, There's a book that you've collated some of them in, Entertaining a la
1: carte. Yes, it's written by Peyton Skipwith, who was, um, he managed the estate of the artist Edward Borden, and Bawden worked for us for 30 years and his artwork is something of which we are immensely proud and so we've got this beautiful book and you can see some of the things that are in the archive. They're fun, they're fun.
0: Thank you for agreeing to speak to me today. Um, It's been very interesting hearing about the history of your work. Um, Andrea, uh, I really like the stories that you've told uh, well, and you. I hope that you continue to fill the gaps that you have still and maybe get some of the, uh, the 18th century
1: um, stories. Oh, please. And if I anybody think. listening has got any information. Yes, this when, is a call if, out for... Yeah, once, once we're back in harness, come and see me and we can have a cup of tea and uh, yeah. for a knickerbocker glory and we can talk about it. Oh, I always love a knickerbocker glory.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Very nice to talk to you, Faith. Stay safe.
0: <laughs> you Bye. Soon.
1: Bye. Bye.